But would you turn with me, please, to Joshua in the ninth chapter? But actually, what I would like to take a look at is one verse in chapter 8, please, verse 34. What I'd like to do is, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've taken a look at, at uh, the book of Joshua, and we need to remind ourselves, we saw that Joshua, the last time we gathered together, he, he went against Ai without, without asking God for a plan. What we're going to read today is you'd think, you'd think he learned a lesson. There's so much in this chapter because in this chapter shows us how illogical we become as believers. How it so quickly we, we forget the wonders of our God and, and start moving out in our own direction, in our own power, in our own strength and, and, and lose the very blessings that God wants to pour out into our lives. And so they went against Ai. They lost the first battle. Uh, Joshua became distraught. He didn't know what to do. He, so he goes before God. Well, that's what he should have done in the first place. And then Joshua reads to the people the whole counsel of the Word of God. And as we saw last week in verse 34, it says, And afterwards Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. You know, usually when I pray before we start the service, I, I I quote out of Psalms 119, Open up our eyes, dear Lord, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. It is the word of God, his law to us, that will move us into this new being that all of us ought to strive to become, conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So Joshua reads all of the law to the people, both the blessings as well as the curses. And it is obvious from chapter 8 that God desires all of His words to be heard and all of His words to be dealt with, the good as well as that which is not so good. Because I believe our Lord knows with all of His heart that we can deal with His truth. We can deal with the truth. All He wants from us is to hear it all so that we can make an intelligent decision concerning what we hear and what we believe. You see, as Rourke said, he came as an agnostic, but now he is a believer. That, I hope and pray, happened in his own heart. Nobody convinced him to do that. That was something that I pray that it was his decision I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you hear from God, you're going to know it. And when you hear from God and you make a decision to follow Him, not someone else's decision for you, then you're going to be more able to live out your your decisions, to live out the truth that you know is within your own heart. And there comes integrity there comes character of what you believe and so it has never been my uh, my bent as someone who would preach the word of god to try to coerce people into believing I, I think that god is more than capable of leading us to himself and i just want to be that person that that just tells the truth as best i know how so that you can come to a conclusion that two and two are four. 
And when you come to that conclusion and you hear it in your own heart, you hear it in your own thoughts, it becomes real to you. And then the faith is not my faith, it is your faith. Just as my faith is mine, it's not yours. It doesn't hinge upon whether you'll come to church or not. It hinges upon what I believe. And that's, that's the integrity of the Word within my own heart and life. And I want that from you and for you. The only way you and I will get that is by studying the Word of God. That's why we are so bent on trying to get every single person in this church into a small group. That's where you'll grow, and that's where you'll learn. Now, as we come to chapter 9, we come to a problem that Joshua went through just a short time ago. I don't know what in the world he is thinking. Read with me, please, in Joshua chapter 9. We will take on the whole chapter because it is a narrative of how the people from the Gibeonites come and try to deceive, not try, they deceive and lie to Joshua. Okay, let me tell you this in the beginning. I have a problem with this. This is one of those places that you might not want to teach because how do you justify? Number one, the people, the Gibeonites heard that if they go against Israel, they're going to lose and they're going to die. Their whole nation of them will die. And so how are they going to devise a plan so as to live? They could have left the land, I guess, but I think they could have given their hearts to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and and been a part of the Israelites. I, I think they could have done that, but I don't know for certain. And so they are trying to save their lives, their families. They're trying to save their loved ones. And they come up with this plan, but they deceived and lied to accomplish what they wanted to get done. Read with me, please, chapter 9. It is an amazing place in the Word of God. It came about, it says, when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowlands and on the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, when they heard of it, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. But here something happens in verse 3. When the inhabitants of of Gibbon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, They also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins and worn-out and torn and mended and worn-out and patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes on themselves. All the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hittites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said, in verse 8, They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country 
because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, and who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and our inhabitants of our country spoke to us and said, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry. It has become crumbled. And these wineskins which we filled were new. And behold, they are torn. And these are clothes and our sandals were worn out because of the very long journey. Key to this chapter is verse 14. So it says, the, the men of Israel took some of their provisions and they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made a peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. It came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. So it says in verse 17, the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shephigra, I think it's pronounced, and Beeroth, and also Kiriath Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against its leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, lest wrath be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. So the leaders said to them, Let them live. And they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Verse 22, Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them and said, Why have you deceived us, saying that we are from very far from you, when you are now living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed. And you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, and they said, Because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold... We are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus Joshua did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day's hewers of wood and drawers of the water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day and the place in which he would choose. It's an interesting story, is it not? What do they do? I mean, really, what do they do? I mean, they had heard correctly. 
Moses told Joshua that they were going to conquer the land. God was with Joshua and there was nobody that was going to stand before them. So on one hand, I I, I detest that these people were deceitful. I, I, I detest that they were lying. But on the other hand, I mean, here they are trying to save their children and their families. And so... Let's not wrestle with that so much because I don't know the answer to it. Not yet. But let's wrestle with the fact that, well, not even wrestle with it. Let's take what we know. And that is that Joshua and the men of Israel stood upon their word. Even though they were lied to, even though they were deceived, they they never stopped from honoring their word because they didn't want to dishonor their God. And that we can learn. That we can learn. We can learn the very essence of of standing upon those things that we know that we've made a vow to and stand upon it. I pray for my dad all the time. I don't pray for him so much. I just thank God so much for him. I had a great father. I really did. He never took us to church, though. He never gave us any religious background. But my dad was a man of integrity. And if I have any strain of integrity running through me, it's because of my father. When my father shook a person's hand and said he would do something, he would do it if he was on his deathbed. He would try to accomplish what he promised. And um, I'm thankful for that. We're living in a time in a society where... It's easy for people to say, I'm going to do this or that, and and then not even do it, but run and get an attorney and see how they can get out of what they've made a promise to do. What I want for you and me is to be a people of our word, to be truthful to what we believe in, to be people who, who look and act like Christians, who represent our Lord in the lives in which we've been given to live. And this is a good chapter to learn that truth. And so, let's ask the Lord to bless us and to make it through this day. Father, we give you the the greatest. Father, we, we give you our heart. We, we give you this time that you have given to us. We just return it back to you so that we can study and and kind of grow closer to you and and understand some of the things that are written within your word, would you please bless it? I know many people here are sick and come, and that's very kind that they would come even when they're sick like they are. I pray that you watch over every person that's here that has a cough or kind of this bug that's going around. I pray that you watch over each one. But more than that, Father, right now, I pray that you would open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law, that you would give us the very tremendous privilege, dear Father, of of seeing what you have to write to us and, and understanding, comprehending what's going on. And in those places where we don't quite understand, like I don't anyways yet, Father, about about the Gibeonites and how they deceived and lied. But what I do see is that Joshua held truthful, held held to his word.
And he honored the people by doing that. And in so doing, Father, I think he gave a great representation of who you are in the Gibeonites' lives. Hopefully that drew these people to know you and believe in you. And so, Father, we saw a wonderful video done by some people in our house that is encouraging us to be involved in small groups and saw some tremendous testimonies, people who just poured their hearts out trying to encourage us to go and be in a small group. And then, Father, we we had the privilege of reading this chapter. And, Father, we just asked that you would just open up our eyes and our hearts so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Teach us, we pray, dear Father. Teach us so that we might learn a lesson that Joshua just couldn't get through his heart for whatever reason. May we never move out without getting your approval, without hearing your voice. Bless us, please, dear Father. Move me aside, I pray, Father. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Joshua, Joshua had a problem. The problem he went through just a short time ago in the time of Ai, he should have known better. Without question, the key to this particular chapter is that Joshua and Israel, in verse uh, 14, stopped. They stopped placing their reliance upon God one more time. They forgot about Ai. How they forgot about it, I don't know. But they did. And if you look at verse 14 again, you, you need to be amazed. Amazed at the foolishness of Joshua and, I might add, our foolishness as well. For any of us who try to make sense in this world in which we live without the guidance and protection of our God. And so it says in verse 15, 14, the men of Israel took some of their provisions and they did what? They did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. How? How in the world could they have done that? How in the world could we do that? It shows me the sinful nature of mankind to think that, 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 that Joshua didn't feel like he needed God every second in his life, to feel that you and I don't need God in every second of our lives, and also to see the deceitfulness of mankind through the kings who were living in the land who deceived Israel. Joshua's strategy was simple to see here. He first went against Jericho. Jericho was located in the center of the land. And because God took him and they marched around the city 13 times in seven days, and the walls fell down, they took the city. That was right in the center. Then they went northeast from Jericho to a place called Ai. Now, they lost the first battle because Joshua did not trust in God. But he fell on his face. God blessed him anyways, forgave him, and then went and they took over Ai. And now what they are going to do is go to the south, about 25 miles to the south were the Gibeonites. They were perhaps next in line for Joshua and Israel to conquer. But they devised, they meaning the Gibeonites, devised their own plan, and their plan was to, was to lie 
to Joshua and lie to Israel so as to save their lives. They started off in verses 1 and 2, as we just read. They started off thinking, let's do battle against Israel. Let's do battle against Joshua. But when they saw and heard all that God did in verses 3 through 15, they backed off of that plan. When they heard what Israel and their God did to the other kings in the land and beyond, they became afraid of Israel. They became afraid of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what they did was they devised a deceitful plan to save their lives. In verse 9, they said, after they thought this through, verses 1 and 2, they were going to do battle against them. But when they thought it through, they said to Joshua, when they came before him in verse 9, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard the reports of him and all that he has done in Egypt. In Dr. McGee's commentary, he believes that Jericho and Ai and the Gibeonites represented three different phases of our walk with Jesus Christ. Jericho, um, Dr. McGee believes, represents the world. Ai, Dr. McGee believes, represents our flesh. The Gibeonites, Dr. McGee believes, represents Satan. And so as he comes forth to do battle against the Gibeonites, it is like doing battle against spiritual forces, against Satan. Now, if that be true, and I have a tendency to believe that Dr. McGee is, he just doesn't say things just to say them. He thinks it through and studies hard, I know. If that be true, and since Ephesians is a, a corresponding book with Joshua, then let's turn to Ephesians and see the battle plan against uh, the Gibeonites. What we are going to find in Ephesians chapter 6 is a, a very important parallel account. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, how you and I are to do battle against the Gibeonites. In other words, to do battle against the devil. There is a plan. He says in Ephesians 6, verse 11, we are to put on the full armor of God so that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil are deceit and lies. I'll show you this in a moment. Verse 12, Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, it's against the powers, it's against the world forces of this darkness. It is against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our real enemy today is not flesh and blood. Our real enemy today is a spiritual enemy. It is Satan. There are some that don't recognize him today. Don't know what he's like. There are even some who don't even believe that he exists. Now, if he does exist, then what does he do? How does he come against believers? Well, I'll tell you. 
He does exist. And what He wants to do to the church today, it's, it's, as, it's, as, it's as evident and as plain as the nose on my face. And that's pretty evident. You can see my nose. You might not be able to see my face, but you can see my nose. And it is as evident as that. He is trying to trick the church into trusting Him. Just like these Gibeonites did with Joshua and with Israel. So Satan today is trying to deceive you and me and to lie to you and me so that we might follow after Him instead of following after our God. Please, don't miss this truth. Jesus Christ said to the religious unbelievers, there are many religions out there. I choose not to say that I'm a religious person. I choose to say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Because there are so many different religions out there, you can get confused. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no confusion. Two and two are four if you follow Him. If you follow after religions, I mean, even denominations today of churches that are quote-unquote Christian churches, some of the, uh, of, of, of the traditions that they have being passed on from one generation to the next are not even traditions that, that are, are to be supported within the Word of God. And so Jesus Christ said to the religious unbelievers of His day, in John chapter 8 and in verse 44, He said to them, You guys are of your father whom? That's it. You are of your father, the devil, he says. What you want to do, he says, is you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. Because, he says, Jesus said to them, there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own nature. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. Just as the serpent deceived Eve in the garden. Just as the Gibeonites are deceiving Joshua in Israel there in the promised land, so Satan today is trying to deceive you and me. And what he does is he, he normally comes alongside of, of religious people. He normally comes alongside and tries to trick us into teaming up with Him in the hopes that we will move away from our walk with God and move God out of the equation, out of our plans. Verse 14, it says, The men of Israel took some of their provisions and they did not ask God for the counsel. They did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. He tries to take, Satan tries to take God out of the equation. You know what? I, I, am, I am not certain that, that, that Satan is interested in making people drunkards today or drug addicts, but I'm sure that there are plenty that do that. But I do believe this. I believe Satan went to churches last Sunday, and he'll be there next Sunday too. 
You see, he wants to be religious. He longs to be religious. He wants us to ultimately fall down and worship him. That's what he wants. He wants us to team up with him, moving us away from our being committed to Jesus Christ. We went through weeks of studying the book of Acts, the second chapter, where it says that the apostles told the church, the first church, what we want you to be is completely devoted to the apostles' teachings, to the teaching of the Word of God, to fellowship, to prayer, to all of these things, communion. And so we understand, we should understand what a a New Testament church looks like. We are, as best we know how, forming our church to be a New Testament church based on the very essence of an Acts 2 type of a church. But Satan's a clever son of a gun. And many Christians are taken in by his schemes. He can pull the wool over our eyes if we're not careful. And the only way we're going to be careful is to know the Word of God so we can know what is counterfeit. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 2.11 so that no one would take advantage of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. But I'm telling you today, unfortunately, many quote-unquote believers have been taken in by his schemes and are ignorant of his devices. Pastor West uses this example all the time. At least I've heard him use it before. It's like putting a frog into a kettle of warm water. A frog won't jump out of a kettle of warm water, Pastor West explains. It'll just nestle in and kind of get comfortable and kick back and catch a few winks, you know. But you turn up the heat and slowly, before it knows it, it's cooked. It's dead. I want you to hear this. I am so serious. Many a church today has begun teaching the Word of God. I know of some. I know how some of them started. I know how... One church in particular with this pastor that is so famous right now, I know how they started the church. I, I was there at the beginning of it in what they call growth, what they call concern for the loss. They put aside their Bibles and they move them away because they don't want to discourage the non-believer that is coming into their church because now so many non-believers want to come into their church. They don't want to offend them. And so they put the Bibles aside in what they call concern for the lost, what they call growth. And before you know it, all of a sudden you're looking at a church that looks more like a country club falling away from the teaching of the Word of God. And they may say it's all done in the name of growth. They may say it's all done for reaching, quote-unquote, the seekers. Look at who doesn't want to reach the seekers. All of us within the family of God want to reach people who are seeking after Christ. We want to teach that person about the goodness of Christ. But you can't teach a person who is seeking after the goodness of Christ by telling uh, fables and stories and tickling their ears. You've got to teach them the Word of God. That's why God gave us this. And so through deception and through lies, they say that they are reaching the seekers, but I'll tell you what I call it. I call it compromising with the devil. They've sold their soul for growth. 
to the devil himself by taking away the Word of God from being taught from on churches on Sunday mornings. Satan comes sometimes as a devouring lion, we are told in 1 Peter 5.8. Be on the alert, we are told. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Yes, that's true. But sometimes he also comes as deceptive as a serpent. But make no mistake about it, he is alive, he's well, and he's wreaking havoc within the church today. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he says, I'm afraid. He says, I am afraid, and he's talking about the churches, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Jesus Christ. There is only one devotion to Jesus Christ, and that is devotion to His Word. That's it, folks. That's it. It's not rocket scientists. Church is not rocket scientists. It's studying and knowing and understanding the Word of God and teaching it the best we know how and getting you and me grounded in the Word of God so that we will not be deceived by these uh, deceptions and lies that come our way from cults or any other groups that try to get our attention away from our devotion to Christ, the simplicity of His Word. And so we must be on the alert and we must be protected day and night by the spiritual armor that we are told to put on in the book of Ephesians in the 6th chapter, the 10th through the 18th verse. Now how do we overcome the enemy? How do we overcome Satan? Well, James tells us plainly, he says, submit, James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We need to submit ourselves to the Word of God. I told you about Dr. McGee a little while ago. I'm going to tell you that he writes this because I wouldn't have the courage to say it, I don't think. Dr. McGee writes in his commentary concerning Joshua chapter 9. He says, frankly... I'm amazed at the stupidity of the saints today. That's my man, Dr. McGee. He just does not mince words. He says they, they are taken in by every ruse imaginable. He says, do you know why religious rackets are flourishing? It's because Christians are supporting them without doing any investigation. Christians are attending churches that ignore the teaching of the Word of God. You see, we are to be like Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, it says, the Bereans were more noble-minded than those who were in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble-minded? Because it says, they received the Word of God with great eagerness. They examined the Scriptures daily to see whether the things that they were being taught were true or not. You and I need to do that. You can't come here and not have your Bible and, and expect me to be everything I say to you is truth, you've got to check it out. You can't trust that I'm going to be the one that's going to find all truth for you or me. We need each other. And you must examine what I teach from this pulpit, examine it daily to make sure that what I am teaching is true. And so churches are opening their doors. And they don't have people bring in their Bibles. 
And they're falling into the deception and the lies of Satan by trying to get growth. In verses 16 through 27, the end of this chapter, when Israel discovered that the Gibeonites were really their neighbors, and when they discovered that the Gibeonites really had tricked them, deceived them, they still honored the treaty. They still honored their word, which they made with them. I love the integrity of Joshua. I love the integrity of the Israelites. They were more concerned with their promise before God than what might happen to them. But, as we've already learned, these people came to them and says, we want to be your servants, your slaves. Look at verse 8. They said to Joshua, we're your servants. They say in verse 9, they said to Joshua, your servants have come to you from a very far land. And so Joshua took them up on that and made them his slave. Made them the slaves of Israel. Because they gave their word, Joshua and Israel lived up to their word and allowed these people to live in the land. Their lives were spared because a vow was made to them before God. You and I must give the leaders of Israel credit. I mean, the people got angry with them. I say on the contrary, we need to give them credit where credit is due. They were being men of their word because to violate an oath would have been to take the name of the Lord their God in vain. Many leaders of lesser character might have argued all's fair in love and war, not Joshua. He honored that treaty he made with those people even though it was made under deceitful and lies. Joshua teaches you and me a very important lesson here. First and foremost, don't go off and make a decision that you don't have to make without the counsel of God first. Seek His heart. Find out what it is that He wants from you. And do as He says. But once you do make a decision, Joshua teaches us an important lesson, and it is this. If we make a mistake, admit it and live out that mistake, even though it was done with deceit and lies. And so they agreed with Joshua, they meaning the Gibeonites, that they would rather submit and be servants than to be destroyed. As I say to you, who could blame them? Who could blame them? Not me. Not me. But do not let this chapter go unnoticed that a man's word is so important. That's the way that God wanted it then, and that is the way that God wants it today. We are to be a people of our word, but so as not to get into that problem area We are to be a people who seeks after God first to find out what He wants from us. For goodness sakes, folks, let's learn from Joshua. There's no way that he should have gone after the Gibeonites without listening to the counsel of the Lord. He had learned his lesson, you would have hoped, in Ai, but he didn't. And so you and I need to learn a lesson. Now, 
told you this kind of a difficult place to teach because I feel tossed. But um, I want to thank you for, for being here. I want to thank every single one of you. We don't do things easily here. We do things that we think is correct, and we do things that we believe that God would have us to do. And so to teach the Word of God as we do, sometimes it's not an attractive package, really. But I believe God wants you and me to stand firm in what we believe, to understand what we believe, so that we won't be duped by all of those things that are going out there in this world today, so that we'll be able to teach our children, we'll be able to have them understand what they ought to stand upon and how they are to make their stands. Greatest, one of the greatest things that happened to my wife and me was my son. I am, I am enamored with my son. I love him very, very much. When he was the 10th and 11th and 12th grader in high school, I thought he was going to be Charlie Manson. I didn't know what was going to happen to him. I had no idea where he was going. Hmm. But when he turned about 20, 21 years old, my wife was driving him back from San Diego and he said, you know, darn you, Dad, he says, you've taught me so well. He says that I can't, I can't, I can't shake. I can't shake what you've taught me about the Bible. The inference was that he tried, but he just couldn't. That was worth every minute of going through the Word of God with my family. That statement in and of itself was worth every... We dragged them to church. If they lived in our house, they had to come to church. It is a good thing to teach the Word of God. And we will always do that for you because we love you that much. It's not popular today. It's almost becoming a lost art, I'm hearing. I don't know. But it's breaking my heart. It's breaking my heart what's going on in this world we live today. Churches, good churches, are starting to compromise. We need to pray that God will make these pastors come to their senses. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you will bless your word and that you will allow us to learn from Joshua that, goodness, Father, we there's not a person here that is bright enough, smart enough, good enough that we could uh, turn away from your counsel and make sense of this world in which we live. May we learn from that 14th verse where the people of Israel did not take your counsel. May we learn. And so, Father, would you bless us? Bless us this day, we pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.